Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Zion 2.0. I'm your host, Colin Morris. Today, my guest is Venkatesh Rao. Venkat's a writer, independent management consultant. His writing can be found on the popular blog, Ribbon Farm, as well as Breaking Smart and The Art of the Gig. Venkat has a PhD in systems and control from the University of Michigan. He was a researcher at Cornell. Our conversation goes in a lot of different directions. Um, it's hard to it's hard to pin down one topic. I'm just going to call this a fireside chat. And if you're already a fan of Venkat's work, I think you'll appreciate the breadth and depth of this conversation. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Venkat Rao. I was thinking of a few questions before this conversation started. Like, I smoked a bowl and took a shower, and um, these were the questions that came up. And we're recording, right? Yep, I've been recording the whole time. Oh, okay. Oh, um, are you going to cut off the banter in the beginning? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> All right. I like not telling. I like not telling people when we're recording because sometimes, sometimes people like put their podcast hat on, and they're like <laughs> their de- their demeanor changes. They they talk with some new affect in their voice. Okay, this is the first question. What is the genius? and the shadow of Gen Z. Oh, God. <laughs> the genius and the shadow of Gen Z. I've been writing the series called Domestic Cozy. Have you read parts of that? Yes. Yeah, so that's my sort of at a remove attempt to read the Gen Z sort of personality. Like, honestly, I don't know many Gen Z people. Like, my nephew is a teenager now and I don't have kids and I rarely meet people under the age of 21. So this is all like filtered through whatever memes percolate through Twitter and Twitter, I think is older millennials at best. So there's not actually that much Gen Z activity on Twitter as far as I can tell. Okay. So with that caveat, I would say the Gen Z genius is basically knowing how to go underground Mm. and the what is the the shadow yeah the shadow is um, when they come above ground it isn't pretty things tend to go weird or bad or toxic or angry when they come above ground but they're a great underground species how old are you? Are you I'm Gen tw- Z? Or? No, I'm 28. 28. Okay. So younger end of millennials. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So going underground versus not doing so well above ground. Okay. So the genius is the ability to go underground. Can you say a little more what you mean by that? Is that like being very offline? It's No, no. It's not at all about being very offline. In fact, they're the most online generation ever. Yeah, that's why I was const- a little confused. Yeah, but they've managed to construct online experiences as a sort of domestic space. So when you look at how they treat being online, it's like they're at home. Whereas um, at least my generation, Gen X, oh, yeah. going online is the digital analog to putting on nicer clothes and going out in public. So there's a domesticity to their being online. Nice. So yeah, they've managed to carve out a sort of safe space out of Gen Z internet. And what are those safe spaces? That's what I mean by, 
I think uh, the first one was probably YouTube and uh, sort of the culture around, uh, I don't know, watching each other play video games, which uh, seems to me a pretty bizarre thing that I really cannot get into. Like I've tried to watch people playing video games a little bit and that uh, I guess turned into Twitch. Uh, but there's, uh, there's an episode of South Park about this. Um, do you watch South Park? Uh, yeah, I, I've watched South Park for chunks of years in my life and haven't in a while, but it's still there. Yeah, so there's, uh, the, I don't know if you caught this season, but a few years ago, Kyle is upset with uh, Ike, his younger brother, for abandoning the living room. And it's hilarious because the previous generations were about, oh, you guys are no longer going out here or staying indoors. And now it's like you know, abandoning Main Street and playing outside um, for like digital devices indoors. And this is like taking that uh, recursively one level deeper where Kyle thinks of um, domestic family time as everybody gathers in the living room around one screen and watches TV. And his younger brother and his friends are up in their bedroom, everybody on their own little screen. And they're all interacting in, I don't know, Minecraft or YouTube or whatever little domestic space they have. And they've created this little digital domestic space that they're inhabiting very comfortably. So yeah, so that, I, I think YouTube, Minecraft, that's where it started. Now that they're a little older, I think uh, from what I've seen of TikTok, that's got a very Gen Z vibe. Uh, I just did a post in my domestic cozy series where uh, I propose the hypothesis that TikTok is the anti-Instagram. So Instagram is very, what I call premium mediocre. It's very millennial aesthetic and ethos. And TikTok is the opposite of that. Like even things like, when you look at what kinds of photos and videos people post on Instagram, it is physical public spaces, right? It's like this penniless 28 or 29 year old, your generation of people who, is out there pretending to be richer and more successful than they are using brands or whatever. And it's outdoors. It's in, you know, maybe a fancy tourist spot or something like that in nice clothes and, you know, brand name handbags or whatever it is that you want to show off, become an Instagram celebrity. Uh, that's millennial public premium mediocre ethos. And you look at TikTok and half the videos are people in their bathrooms or bedrooms not really very sort of put together, but doing something fun and cute, like, you know, demonstrating a dance move. And mm. I, I think that's a very telling dividing line between you guys and the generation that's trying to like kick you upstairs. Mm. Yeah, that is so, I love that insight. Like, and I feel like the people in my, in my generation, um, when we feel that there's a need for more spaces that feel like domestic cozy, mm -hmm. like how do we create intimate spaces with each other? It's, it's almost always in person, or at least maybe that's my perception. Yeah. There's a, and I think there's a big market catering to sort of burned out millennials. So millennials who've been trying and failing too hard for too long. There's a whole, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, reaction to that where you kind of just give up, take what you have, retreat to like board games and like family, friends, night, uh, potlucks, that kind of thing. 
Whereas Gen Z seems to be able to find that kind of feeling and vibe while remaining online. Right. right? So, yeah. But again, this is all like I'm one generation removed from millennials. So two generations removed from Gen Z. So this is all sort of, I don't know, a spectator sport for me. Okay. Well, to make it more personal, like what's your, what's your take on that with um, the, the value of creating in-person, intimate, meaningful spaces with other people and the, the digital substitute? Like how do you hold those two things? I think the digital version is vastly superior to the in-person stuff. Yeah. The in-person stuff is like, I don't know, overrated, like uh-huh. overrated. And like, I mean, when I look back at my most interesting relationships in the last couple of decades, almost all of them have come online. Some of the most interesting people I've met and had long conversations with, I've never met in person or had a synchronous conversation with. Like mm. um, a good example is uh, uh, Sarah Perry. She was writing on Ribbon Farm for uh, several years and uh, uh, she's been one of my most interesting sort of dialogue partners in writing. Yeah. I actually met her for the first time this year in July. So that tells you like, you know, wow. that's kind of how um, online culture is because once you sort of connect over interests and sort of shared ways of making meaning, it turns out that the ability to have long extended thoughtful sort of relationship building conversations is far more important than actually I don't know, meeting in person or um, relating. I mean, you need some of that, um, but uh, I don't know. I would say maybe 90% of human sociability is, is mind to mind, not ah. mutual presence in physical space. That feels like a bias on your part. I mean, you might be right, but, but I also feel like um, it ignores the importance of embodiment and the intelligence of the body. To a degree. That, that, that's probably fair. But look at TikTok, for example. You've got people creating memes out of dance moves and half the culture of TikTok seems to be around embodied physicality, right? Yeah. And you'll have VR and AR, so the fidelity is going to increase. So I'm not entirely sure about that. There's a, there's a tendency to sort of... Uh, venerate and a present physical embodiment more than it actually functionally matters. Ah. So uh, it could be a bias. It could be something of a personality style. It could be something like, you know, if you like Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTP. And uh, do you, like, no, no, I, I don't. I, I hear people say those letters. I'm more familiar with okay. the Enneagram. I've never taken Myers-Briggs stuff. Okay, so it's similar, and uh, but the reason I bring it up is I'm a classic INTP, and the N and T stand for intuitive and thinking, and the personality opposites of that are um, F and, sorry, S and F, so the opposite of uh, intuitive is sensory, so being much more present oh. in your senses, Yeah. and the opposite of T is F, which is feeling, so much more um, sort of using emotion as a way to connect to uh, your context, and as an as a former actor, I'm sure you had to like really probe and connect your S and F sides much more yeah. than I would have had to. And me, as a engineer by training, who spent a lot 
a lot of time in the tech world, it's, I've had a chance to develop that side of myself a lot more. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, um, not necessarily bias, but personal life histories that determine this. Yeah. But even taking that into account, I think, yeah, online is much richer than people give it credit for. And a lot of sort of uh, resistance to it is simply, I don't know, the fact that it's new and generationally sort of uh, uh, in transition. Like when we talk about words and language, for example, language has been with us for several thousands of years, written language for uh, slightly less long, but both are very comfortable elements in both our online worlds and offline worlds, right? I mean, if you and I were sitting across from each other having this conversation in person, we would still be using, uh, you know, words and language, not interpretive dance to communicate. And, uh, and that tells us that language as an element of our environment is old enough that it's become comfortable enough that it's become like water to us. We've forgotten that it exists. And digital technology is still new enough that it's not yet like water. And when it turns into water like environmental substance, we kind of will blend physical presence and digital presence in such weird ways that this whole question will become irrelevant. Like you and I might be in a virtual presence sort of context with each other. There might be a couple of real meet space present people in both locations. So it's, and it'll all sort of blur. We, we really won't care. It'll become irrelevant. Mm, yeah. I like what you said about, um, about preference rather than bias. Um, or, or yeah, or like, per, like personality. Uh, personality, life history, yeah, historical like, stage. It's an early stage of this technology compared to other technologies. So yeah, it's right. all in the mix there. Right. Yeah, like there could be a, uh, a dancer someone who's just using their body all day, every day, they, they would get sick in living your life. Don't you think? Probably. But, yeah. But there are dancers who are really exploring the possibilities of VR. And I just mentioned TikTok and they seem to be taking to it much more than anybody else. Yeah. I mean, I haven't spent much time on it, but more than 70% of the videos I see are something dance-like. So yeah. the, there's clearly interesting digital potential. And uh, again, I go back to my sort of uh, non-technological claim that people connect with minds much more than they do with, um, you know, physical media. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question about that. Um, uh, language, language mediated through technology becoming more like water. So people are going to be experimenting with different platforms there'll be early adopters, people that experiment with them. Um, how valuable do you feel like it is to explore in those new methodologies, even if you're comfortable, currently comfortable with the way that you mediate online? Like if you found like your sweet spot, like engaging with people on blogs and Twitter and this new technology is coming out that is going to allow newer generations to mediate much easier, like water, Mm-hmm. Um, like how, how much should we pay attention to and, be, and being able to adapt to those new technologies? I think there's two extremes that people gravitate to, both of which are probably 
bad responses. So one is to think of the new thing as the only thing. Like you have the next new medium or technology and there's a certain kind of uh, very eager early adopter who tends to respond as though everything else that came before is suddenly obsolete and everything must now happen in the new medium, right? And that's never the case. You look back at history, every new technology just adds a new layer and you simply have all of them continuing to exist together. And mm. the proportions get uh, sort of rebalanced, the remix in re uh, weird ways. Like, you know, you had, uh, like, look at the last 150 years. You had print, you had radio, you had television, you had the sort of textual internet, then you had the social internet. Now you have kind of the video internet and in the future we'll have the AR, VR sort of 3D internet, so to speak. But each new technology that came, it kind of absorbed and ate up and refactored the previous one, right? Like look at the latest generation, it includes text and printing from the printing era in the form of blogs and Twitter. It includes radio in the form of podcasts. What you're doing inherits a lot from you know, traditional radio. Mm -hmm. uh, YouTube inherits from uh, television. Streaming video inherits from television. Same thing. It's like all of these things, they'll kind of get ported to the new medium. So it all gets mixed up. So one incorrect response, so to speak, is acting like the new thing is the only thing and everything else is forgotten, right? And the other, I think, um, ineffective response is to get what I call, or not, uh, it's a technical term, uh, functionally fixed. So functionally fixed is a term in psychology that refers to when you think a certain thing can only be used in a certain way because you've been trained to use it that way, right? So if, you, if you've been trained to use a hammer to pound at nails, you think that that's the only thing you can use hammers for. So a hammer becomes a nail pounding device. And people who get attached to media, they often have that response where if you're a writer, you identify not just as somebody who works with words, but you identify with a particular way of using words in a functionally fixed way. Like you might think of yourself as a novelist and you look down on blogging as sort of this new horrible medium, right? Or you think I might be the reverse. I'm sort of raised in blogging culture and I've written books, but fundamentally I think like a blogger and sometimes I succumb to the temptation of being slightly contemptuous of book writers. But uh, there's, that's like getting, I don't know, letting the literal nature of the medium define your relationship with your own creative work. Whereas if you had a more sort of fluid way of relating to your medium, you would react to every new development as, as though it were an opportunity to reimagine what you do, right? So if you're a novel writer and blogs come on the scene, you, if you react as, oh, this is a profane sort of um, desecration of the art form of the written word, that's a kind of functionally fixed uh, reactionary response. On the other hand, if your first reaction is, what can I do with blogs to improve my novel writing? Or is there a better way to turn like this kind of reverse chronological interactive way of speaking with an audience in a conversation? Can I mash that up with this more offline way of writing a big work? And mm. can new works come out of that? And I think um, that's a healthy response. So if you, so long as you avoid those two responses, I think novelty is kind of like a constant in history. It's like there's always something new. 
there's always something that you have to sort of integrate into what you're already doing. And there's always a way in which the old becomes part of the new. So the old never goes away. The new is never everything. Mm, nice. Yeah, great answer. So how do you how do you see yourself? Like like if you were to name like a like some sort of archetype that that you feel like your work embodies, or at least one archetype. Like you said, there's always something new. So those those people are the the innovators or the inventors. Then there are people that are like synthesizers or historians so i'm just curious like how do you see yourself if you had to put it as an archetype like primarily engaging with the world right now i don't know to be honest it's it's Mm. not a question i spend much time thinking about in relation to myself like i spend a lot of time analyzing other people and trends and subcultures and Mm. things I'm looking at. But I rarely look in the mirror to see how I fit into the picture. Mm. It's, it's mostly like whatever seems like the fun thing to do next week is what I do. And sometimes there's logic to it that turns into, I don't know, a long running um, sort of um, a shtick is the best way to think of it. It's not really an archetype. Like two by twos are a stick with me. Like uh, at some point I started playing with two by twos. People noticed. Then I started owning it sort of uh, uh, almost as a joke because everybody hates two by twos as a mark of like, you know, shyster consultants. And I was kind of proud to own two by twos. And at some point it became a running joke with my readers that, um, you know, all my thinking gets reduced to two by twos. So to that extent, um, it's not an archetype but it's a shtick that contributes to a certain amount of continuity. So there's maybe half a dozen strands like that, that represent some sort of continuity in how I've been writing and thinking. Mm. But in general, I would say a lot of it is just, I don't know, slightly more disciplined shit posting. It's um, some of it is like, you know, uh, excuse my language, but pissing in the wind, it sort of is here today and gone tomorrow. Other stuff, it just happens to stick, start larger conversations, cascade into interesting relationships. So I think that's sort of the world we live in because of you know information ubiquity. It's like information is not that valuable right now. So only a portion of it will persist and that's okay. It's okay to like mostly produce shit posting. Yeah. Um- at the risk of blowing smoke up your ass, I think you might be being a little too humble. Like, here's what I mean by that. Like, you're you're calling what you what you do a, a shtick, and I get like I get why you say that, and I also feel like you have contributed like a lot of important work to the world, and like I get that that's like a big thing to to like own. And I get that you want to be humble, but I, I think it's true. Like your work resonates with a lot of people. So it's not humility insofar as it's not really an opinion about myself. Uh-huh. It's a broader opinion of all these subcultures I'm part of, all these conversations I'm part of. So if you think of it as, honestly, I don't think the response to my work is that important either. Mm. Like, it's a bunch of people who are largely going to be forgotten by history, like long before they're even dead (laughs) and they'll fade into irrelevance because I mean, that's, that's the truth about 
humanity. Very few people leave any sort of mark on posterity. Like you're lucky if you earn a footnote in one sort of narrow specialized work about some narrow specialized thing. And yet at one level, it's kind of flattering that over the you know, last 10, 12 years, a lot of people have said, oh yeah, your work has been highly impactful for me and it's mm. really transformed my life. And um, I have to sort of stop myself from saying, and what is the significance of that? What well, is the significance it, of my work impacting you if you don't do anything important either? So it's like, you know, it's like all the people on LinkedIn exchanging um, connections and none of them can actually then give anybody else a job. So you, you have to keep things in perspective. It's, it's nice to have relationships. It's nice to sort of flatter each other's conceits about what they're doing. And it's fun to obviously be acknowledged and recognized, but that's not the same thing as, um, you know, meaningful um, impact or interesting sort of exploration on the frontier of humanity or whatever. It's, it's, it's like hanging out with friends and yeah, it's fun. Sounds like you just need to, how to you need to learn how to receive a compliment. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's the problem because I have been given genuine compliments before and I'm always grateful for that. But I honestly don't think there's actually that much going on here. There's just a lot of community and most community doesn't amount to that much. So yeah, <laughs> I don't think okay. uh, yeah, that's no, what's get, going on. I get that. I get that perspective. It's, uh, I used this in another podcast I was on a couple of months ago. There's that line about uh, when you visit national parks, leave only footprints, take only photographs. Have you seen that line? You mm -hmm. see it posted in like posters at national parks. Most human lives are like that. You, you go back and read something about like some really happening subculture a hundred years ago. And it was, and it'll be really clear that to the people living through that moment in that time period, time and place, that was the most important, exciting thing happening. It felt like they were doing some really significant things in history. But unless you're like a specialized historian researching that era, they're gone and forgotten. Nobody knows and remembers. And I think that's fine. It's, it's almost sort of a liberating thought that what most of us do most of the time kind of doesn't matter. So you might as well have fun with it. Yeah. Well, it is comforting to know that like when you die, you won't give a shit what people think about you or pay attention to you or whatever, you know, it's like the only reality you're designing is the one you're currently in. You have no control over what happens after. So just, yeah, yeah. like do, do your thing fully. Yeah. It's, it's also important to have, so again, going back to the theme of humility and um, taking compliments well or poorly, they're all part of what you can think of as um, the economy of social proof, right? Like uh, when somebody gives you a compliment, whether you respond with sort of um, pride or humility or whatever, it's still a relationship between two people. And that's only one kind of proof that shapes our thought. There's this other kind of much more important proof, which is how it sort of interacts with the real world, right? I mean, I might put like my beautifully worded theory of everything, sort of physics theory out in the world and all the other physics crackpots in the world could like celebrate it and like 
send compliments my way and uh, you know we all celebrate my crackpot flat university theory of physics and none of it has any experimental verification or any grounding in any sort of uh, non-social reality and i'm uh, as an engineer by training that's always sort of been uh, my more how do i put it the truer true north it's it's the more important grounding than social reality it's like so it's something you have to be very wary of just because there's a lot of strong social response to anything you're thinking doesn't mean what you're thinking is actually true mm. can you talk a bit about what true north means to you like do you i'm curious if you have a this is a multi-part question if you have like a religious or spiritual background and if you've had any what you might describe as mystical experiences outside of either of those contexts? Let's skip that question. Oh, come on. Why? <laughs> now, I don't think it's uh, you know, a direction I want to go on in a podcast, but let's talk about true art. Oh, come on. I know. You have a podcast named Zion too, and I'm sure you've got a lot of, uh, I don't know, mystical type people in your audience who are interested in that sort of thing. But it's not... Um, something I think is uh, very interesting to discuss in this particular format. But uh, True North is, it, it's an interesting concept because all your life, you spend so much time in your own head, even if you're sort of the embodied dancer type of person we're talking about, or somebody who's spending a lot of time meditating or, you know, trying um, nootropics and psychedelic experiences or whatever you're spending a lot of time in your own head and it kind of matters what you put in there so there's dimensions i think of as how much are you grounded in phenomenology which um, you know is just sort of the ground reality of experiences versus how much are you spending time dwelling in abstractions when you're thinking about, say, politics, uh, which a lot of us think a lot about these days, how much time do you spend with your head filled with words like, you know, uh, Democrat or Republican or socialist or libertarian versus how much time do you spend with words like uh, compassion or kindness or whatever, right? I mean, your vocabulary matters. What thoughts you think, what uh, what terrain you're exploring, what maps you're using, all that is indicated by sort of the verbal content of your thought, what those words refer to, what maps they create, and what ground underlies those maps. So there's like a whole stack of um, where you are. And if you think of the concept of true north, actually a better way to think of it might be what's true upwards, you know, gravity and so forth. Uh, I think that's a more useful, uh, clearer way of thinking about it. And uh, if you think about the metaphor of up and you go from like the surface of the earth to space, you go from having a vector pointing up and there's a sort of true up to a space where up is whichever direction you define it to be, right? And mm-hmm. being in your own head has the dimension. Like you can go from like basically having a true north grounded somewhere. Maybe it's in sensory experience. Maybe it's in like mathematical rigor. Maybe it's in sort of the rigor of logic. Maybe it's in the rigor of empirical verifiable facts about history and physics. Any of those could be true sort of up or true down, whichever way you want to put ground reality. 
or you can sort of get lost in your own head in ways that feel like you're in outer space. And that's a much harder space to be because you can get very disoriented. It can get very confusing and very dangerous. So that's sort of how I lay out the map of internal space, inner spaces to be in. Mm. And when I think about myself, I would say that my own trajectory started with, like I said, I'm an engineer by training and a researcher by training. So yeah, I would say my early true north was around material realities. What is in fact true in the sense of physics and so forth? What's delusional in that same sense? And later in my career, as I started doing writing and management consulting, I started thinking a lot more about people. And that's where I developed a lot of my suspicions about social reality and uh, mutual flattery, propping up each other's delusions. So a lot of my earlier work, uh, like the Gervais Principle, which you may have uh, read, it was a series that I wrote between 2009 and 2012 that you could say was basically skepticism about social realities, about realities we construct for each other through like propping up each other's belief systems, ideologies, Mm. emotional landscapes, um, self-perceptions. There's a whole sort of mirage or theater we create for each other. And I spend a lot of time like between when I stopped doing engineering work and now I spent several years sort of thinking and writing a lot about that. So my true north then was probably negatively defined as what's not true about the way people tend to think of themselves. Like, you know, when we started talking, you describe yourself as a bodhisattva. That's a term that's drawn from a long tradition that has certain connotations. And my instinctive reaction is, where are you getting that from? Mm -hmm. What part is deluded? What part is aspirational? What part is reflective of true experiences you've had? Uh, What part is even internally coherent and meaningful now as opposed to, you know, 300 BC when the term sort of gained currency. So that approach to, I don't know, taking apart social realities, I would say that was my true north. It was sort of a skeptical, nihilistic true north um, for several years. Uh, More recently, I would say in the last few years, I've gotten very interested in uh, what the post-rationalist crowd likes to call object level stuff. So trying and get away from abstractions as much as possible. Whatever you want to think about, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, partisan or good or evil or whatever it is, but whatever you think about, try and think of about it with the lowest level abstractions you can, most ground level you can. So whether you want to be a Nazi fascist trying to figure out how to kick all the immigrants out of the country, or whether you want to be a socialist figuring out universal basic income, whatever it is you want to think about and whatever position you want to adopt, try and adopt it at the lowest level of abstraction possible. So that's an interesting challenge. And it's, it's sort of affected how I've been doing my writing. So in the last year, I've been trying to write in this format I call a blockchain. So part of the motivation for that experiment is, can I actually force myself to get away from abstractions, get away from metaphors, get away from sort of, you know, big pie in the sky, unmoored from an up or down, disorienting sort of conceptual space and work much more at the phenomenological level. 
and it's an interesting challenge because the danger is when you're trying to think at that level, you get sucked into the mundane banalities of, of the new cycle, right? There's that line about um, small minds talk about people, mediocre minds talk about events, great minds talk about ideas. So there's an element of truth to that, where if you try and stay away from abstractions and conceptual sort of infrastructure, you might get sucked down to the level of pointless gossip and trivia. You so might the, stop dreaming. Yeah. Or you dream in very tropey, banal ways that are inspired by and Hollywood gossip, right? So, so the challenge is how do you, I don't know, practice high thinking with low conceptual infrastructure? How do you, um, you you've heard that line about simple living, high thinking, right? So yeah. this is like, um, in a way, trying to do simple thinking and high thinking at the same time. Like, uh, how do you try and think in the simplest possible terms, but not necessarily about the simplest possible things? So what, what kind of aesthetic helps with that? That's a good question. And luckily for you, I actually have a clear answer today, which I wouldn't have had six months ago. Oh, so yeah. I've been playing with this concept that I've been tweeting about a lot, which I call log level. So log as an LOG log, uh, computer logs or any kind of like, um, you know, recording in chronological order of a stream of experience or perception. Computers do that. They log, you know, crashes and reboots. Um, gas meter inspectors do that. They go around buildings recording like, you know, gas usage or whatever. So think of, all activities that happen at law uh, at log level. I, I would say that's my our aspirational aesthetic right now. Like ten years ago, it was much more about what castles in the air can I build. Now it's much more about what kind of sort of experience can I log. How can I inhabit the stream of experience I'm in right now in a way that sort of logs the experience in an interesting way. And if you think about it, that's actually trying to recover and rediscover the original spirit of blogging. Like the word blog is web log, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow that idea that a blog is a web log lasted like five minutes after blogs were invented. Like mm -hmm. after that, people started turning it into essay writing, magazines, high concept stuff. And the concept of idea actually logging the experience of being alive kind of got lost. And I think that's kind of a pity because if you think about what came before, you had diaries and journals and much more sort of intimate ways of logging, being alive as a human being. Mm. But blogs, when they started, the aspirational idea was, can you actually live a performed logged life in public where in a very interesting way, you're actually capturing what you're living through? And mm -hmm. it's actually very rare to find journals and diaries that hit that note. Like uh, one of my favorite books is, um, what's it called? The Diary of Samuel Pepys. He was an Englishman who lived through the Great Fire of London and that era, 17th century, I think. And it's wonderful. He's, he's clearly not writing it as sort of a personal diary that's not to be shared with the world. It's not a snowflakey journal that's lost in his own sort of headspace and, you know, Mm. poetry or philosophy yeah it's, it's a service it's, it's, it's service maybe a selfish act that also serves as a service but it's like it's uh, here's one way to think of it it's it's bearing witness to being alive 
right? Yeah. So one of my colleagues here, uh, right now I'm doing a fellowship at the Berggruen Institute and my, one of my colleagues here is another fellow, uh, Alison Pugh, and she's researching uh, witnessing relationships, how you sort of witness wherever you are. And I think that's a function that blogging actually serves very well if you understand it literally as logging of experiences. And so that's, uh, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at, a log level witnessing of experiences. Because you're, um, that's interesting. Like you're not interested necessarily in communicating a feeling. Like I think about like an like someone who's drawn to do art, for example. Mm-hmm. They're logging their experience too. They're just doing it in a different language. They're putting a lot of their, and I don't mean this in a bad way. They're putting a lot of their ego into it. So I'm, I'm trying it depends to separate. Depends on the artist. Yeah. On the artist. Yeah, but I'm trying to separate egoistic creativity. Sort of, uh, you know, uh, there's a sense of writing and any kind of performance as a sense of self-authoring, right? You could sing, you could act, you could write, you could make construction models out of 3D printers, whatever it is you do, there's a way to do it that's a way of authoring your own existence. So you kind of become a better defined, more continuously coherent life. And mm-hmm. there's a way of doing it where you go in the opposite direction, where you see yourself as a sort of sensing instrument or a measure of uh, of the slice of the universe that you're living through. And you kind of want to almost become a true instrument where the better you witness what you're living through, the more it's sort of a log of the universe itself kind of speaking through you as opposed to you, the egoistic self observing the universe. Mm-hmm. And since you kind of wanted to go down that bunny trail of mystical experiences. This is a much more sort of mundane cousin of that. Like uh, if you think about something like mindfulness meditation, it's a log level awareness of uh, sort of a stream of consciousness, strain of thought or whatever it is. If you take that sensibility and apply it to just whatever you're living through, that's what the log level aesthetic is. And it's, um, Mm. It's not something that takes a lot of skill or training or great personal rigorous effort to do. It's just something you choose to do. Mm -hmm. You can live through your day. You can ask, in what sense have I marked time? So logs, actually, there's a strong time element. And that's one of my, that's my main research topic at the moment, temporality, the experience of time. Mm. And I'm working on a thesis I call multi-temporality, which is, multiple parallel ways of experiencing being and time uh, at once. And here's the thing about temporality. You could say that in a sense, time doesn't exist until you actually construct it. And a log level awareness of experience is the act of consciously constructing the time as you live it. And if you, normally this happens unconsciously in the background, we construct it for each other. And it's like, all right, time is something that just chugs along. But when you go through I don't know, weird or intense or traumatic periods, either individually or collectively, the sense of time can get broken. And this is what a lot of people call atemporality. And atemporality is a condition where, you know, time gets murdered almost. And a log level aesthetic to life is trying to recover and resurrect a sense of time. So that's 
kind of my aesthetic now, a long-winded answer to your question. Mm. Nice. Ooh, I know what I want to talk about. Consulting. I like the word, I really like the word consulting because it's, it's broad enough to capture whatever your unique genius is to consult. So you can market yourself as a consultant. People come look at your website and you can create whatever you want. You can create the person, the version of your genius that has and what you have to share. So like you can paint the, the experience, you can paint the picture of your experience and just sort of invite people in. And if they want to learn more from you, there's an exchange of money. Um, yeah. That's a good way of you, thinking of consulting. How did you, um, how did you come to consulting and when did you feel like, oh, I'm competent enough to consult in this area? So I write a whole newsletter about this part of gig. Mm. So I've said way too much about it in, on that list. So people are interested can go look at some of the details of the story there. Um, but the short answer to your question is I started after I quit a job at Xerox in 2011 and my blog had already been established by that time. And like I had my first couple of clients even before I quit. Mm. So, and I never didn't feel competent. So I didn't have imposter syndrome or uh, uh, any kind of like sense of not being up to the task. It was only a question of like finding and connecting with the right people who'd be interested in hiring me. So that part wasn't um, hard. And um, yeah, there's sort of, uh, an element of luck to it and an element of skill and an element of you know, personal and professional development that you have to bring to the game. But what something you said is kind of interesting though I would phrase it differently. Like bringing your unique genius to the world and inviting people into it. I would frame it differently because this is again uh, sort of my bias against uh, sort of an egoistic construction of one's own presence. Um, the idea of a genius, when you use the word genius, I'm reminded of um, Elizabeth Gilbert's TED talk, which is wonderful, and I recommend people uh, watch it. Mm. It's about the nature of genius. Like, uh, she's the one. Who, yeah, it's like channeling genius. Like the muse move, moves yeah, through yeah. you. You're just a you're just a vessel. Exactly, yeah. and I, think I like that. that. Yeah, it's 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 half it. So the, if you look at a spectrum of there's one end of the spectrum where you are your genius, right? That's the egoistic attachment to the idea of a genius. That tends to be a fairly early stage of creative development of creative people. If you get stuck in that stage, you will never produce a whole lot because you kind of have to become detached from your, the idea of a genius yeah. to produce at all. The second stage, I think, is what is represented by Gilbert's talk where you're able to like think of it or construct it at a remove from yourself, but still as sort of cons uh, as a, an agentful, intentional entity that's attached to you and occasionally visits you, right? Mm. Uh, th that idea, it's, um, it's a common trope in uh, science fiction and fantasy. Like you've got familiars in fantasy of witches having owls and things like that. That's a, a kind of genius thing. You've got um, the dark materials. HBO uh, is starting that show. So have you read the dark materials? Yeah. Yeah, so you've got Damon. the demon. Yeah, that's uh, exactly, that's a, that's a genius, right? Mm. It's a very archetypal expression of who you are, but in a detached form, so you don't get attached to it. 
So it's, it, it, it at once acknowledges and um, sort of owns who you are without getting attached to it egoistically. Mm-hmm. But that's, I still think of that as a second stage of um, sort of understanding who you are creatively. The stage I think that gets most interesting, and this is where consulting is interesting, is if you, if you take that second idea of a genius and sort of de-anthropomorphize it and depersonalize it and look at it simply as the aggregated, compounded, rolled up bundle of your experiences, that makes it just data. It's You've lived a certain life for a certain length of time and um, you roll up that story and it has a certain identity to it and you can get attached or detached from it, that's your genius. But if you unroll it and say, all right, I simply represent an API or an interface to a certain data set. And my job is to take that memory, think of it as a memory. So you're going from an egoistic understanding of genius to a sort of uh, arm's length personified idea of genius to an unrolled memory idea of genius. And this uh, connects to what we were talking about before, you know, log level and time and so forth. Mm. Because if you think about what uh, you've heard of the idea you are the sum total of all your decisions or you are the sum total of all your experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So reverse that process. If you can be the sum of all your experiences and decisions, well, then you can be unrolled into sort of a tapestry or history of decisions and so forth. And that story becomes kind of like a database that you have privileged access to Mm -hmm. or a transcript you have privileged access to and nothing special about you as a person, but you just happen to be the interface to that particular stream of consciousness, that log file of, you know, 10 years or whatever. So when I started consulting in 2011, this wasn't clear to me. I thought it was about me that I had to brand myself and, you know, have people relate to me as some sort of uniquely processed and constructed embodiment of a certain Mm -hmm. experience. Then I came to this sort of more demon like view of, all right, there is this, um, I don't know, like, um, dark material style demon that's kind of more my social media personality that sort of performs in a certain way. And if it does this little performative dance, clients bite and send me leads and I get gigs. So I had that sort of detached view of who I am as a marketer versus who I am as a consultant. And the way I started thinking about it now that I'm like nearly a decade into the game is I'm not a blank slate as in I'm not just some functional expertise that all right, you need help with product strategy, you come to me and I will give you several two by twos and frameworks to think about product strategy. That, that doesn't work. It's more like, all right, there is a story that I've been sort of part of over the last 15, 20 years. And that story is perhaps a good context in which to have certain conversations. And there's always two sides to that, right? There's me, there's the client, there's two stories and those two stories kind of like merge into one and that creates a context in which certain conversations can be had more productively. So I I think of that as my, well, since we're talking about aesthetics and log level, that's the log level understanding of what consulting is. And that makes a whole lot of sense. It's, it's the sort of thing that makes a lot of sense once you've lived through it, but not a lot of sense if you've not yet sort of experienced that way. Mm. No, I like that a lot. Um, one of the things you, were, you said made me think about <laughs> uh, data and privacy. Um, it's the process of 
like not taking your story too personally or being able to have being able to sort of see it at an arm's length, not be overly identified with aspects of your story, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I had this guy on my podcast, Alexander Bard, and we were talking about, I brought up the idea of data sovereignty. You know, like there are nonprofits yeah. that are trying to. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So one, and he's Swedish and he was like, no one outside of America talks about data sovereignty. It's narcissistic. Like Google, Google wants. 28 year old white male who lives in Colorado who like drives his Subaru and like buys iced coffee or whatever the fuck they don't they don't care about me right he was like data sovereignty is narcissistic um and like my question was just like okay well I get like I really get that perspective and then the other part of me was like so does that just mean roll over and give up the idea of data sovereignty or being able to take a slice of the data pie. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I think you're conflating some philosophical and ethical questions with a practical economics question. Like, um, mm-hmm. it's I, like I, all right. Probably, I probably did. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> if you're say an Uber driver, then simply by virtue of being an Uber driver doing a lot of rides in a city, you're generating data and um, that data has value, presumably for future driverless cars or something. And um, it's an economics question of, all right, what's the right way to sort of allocate the value of the data being generated? Mm-hmm. And that's a sort of data set that it's easy to think about in very sort of um, impersonal ways because it is impersonal to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Whereas uh, say the, Another kind of data set, which uh, is much more personal is say the history of all your text messages, which uh, at the moment only you and the people you've talked to can read. And besides that, only the Chinese government and the NSA can read, right? So four parties can read uh, these text messages. And data sovereignty there, I think it's not, it's not narcissistic to want to have a degree of uh, agency over what that is, how that is used. Like just this morning, I saw this thing on the New York Times, I think um, an article by Kashmir Hill. She talks about all the data that's collected on you by consumer agencies and uh, how you can actually get a copy of it. And she described the stuff that she was able to recover. And some of it was like pretty banal, but some of it, it struck me as like pretty intrusive. That's not something I would want anybody to know our process without my knowledge, right? So yeah, it's, uh, that's the practical level at which you'd have to sort this out. Now, when you talk about the philosophical level, is it narcissistic or not? I don't think it's narcissistic. It's, uh, it's just practical. I mean, we've, it's always, there's a, there's a part of your history that's where your identity as a person lies and yeah, you got to fight to own whatever part of it you need to own. Mm. Probably most people draw the circle too broadly because um, they think their life stories are more unique than they really are. Like if Mm. that makes sense, 
right? So you might have like, I don't know, say a history of your relationship text with everybody you've dated or ended up marrying or something that might seem like a very unique, precious and intrusive kind of story for you. But maybe in a large statistical data set, you look like just another very, very typical person in your time and place, right? So there's, there's the question of, all right, how much of your um, identity is anchored in truly unique things about yourself mm. versus how much is anchored in really banal commonalities that you share with a million other people? How should you feel about those two different things? So yeah, lots of things to process and think about. And I don't think there's any interesting, easy answers. Like sometimes I'm, uh, I like jumping to the easy, wrong answers if they're at least interesting but there's not even any interesting wrong answers here. So might as well go for the boring detailed answer. Mm. It's, a, it's a hard topic to think about. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Cause there's so much more at stake for the people that do have some novelty in their lives. Yeah. I mean, that's why like revenge porn and various kinds of like exposés and other things have become like you know, valuable currency in our time. Like um, just, a couple that have happened in the last week, you had the, what's her name? Katie Hill, the congresswoman from California. Her oh, like weed smoking bisexual threesome picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her husband basically seems to be pissed off at her and released pictures of her, which is a terrible way to end a promising political career. And uh, on the other side of the political divide, just yesterday, I think uh, Richard Spencer, the ultra white nationalist guy, he does some recording of his um, yelling racist stuff that got leaked. So it's like all that stuff is happening all over the place. And some of it is a lot more valuable than others. And there is an economy around this stuff, right? And um, if you're a fundamentally boring person, there's going to be nothing of value for people to sort of reveal about you. But if you're doing anything at all interesting, chances are there are, things that are uniquely about you that uh, would make for valuable currency revealed. Wait, how is, how is Richard Spencer yelling racist things valuable? Isn't that just his MO? Or is he like a button Oh no, this is, uh, this is a recording um, that is extremely explicit that was uh, private and somebody leaked it. It's way more go listen to it. It, it, it it's way more sort of uh, candid than he's yeah. ever been in public so it's basically the end of his career if it's validated so, wow yeah i mean yeah so you may think you're being very bold and politically incorrect and able to say speak your mind in public but um, there's layers and layers so yeah <laughs> there's always going to be stuff for people like that that they don't want public have you ever um researched uh Secret societies? Has that ever been a research interest of yours? I mean, I've casually talked to people who are interested in them, but it's, I've always found it kind of boring, to be honest. It's like <laughs> all these people create a lot of theater and drama and then, I don't know, have their little private subculture stuff. But when you sort of get a peek into it, and I've had a peek in a few of them, it's always very tawdry and, you know, it's, it's like seeing behind a magician's uh, yeah. act where it's like fundamentally disappointing. There's not a whole lot going on. Right. Right. It's yeah. much more fun to talk about secret societies when you don't know about them. And you, it's all about, you know, the 
big Hollywood movies talking about the Templar Knights uh, shaping history. And then you go actually dig it up and it's like, ah, there's nothing much here. <laughs> so um, I like the idea of, um, or like the impetus to organize a society that is kept secret to talk about or engage in um, like the only word that's coming up is sacred and like you might balk at that word, but, but it's like um, the thing, the things that the ideas that are too precious to get leaked, you know, the things that are um, maybe it's just your subculture who, who believes in the importance of them. But if you, but if, if there's some reason to believe that there is um yeah, knowledge that you want to keep secret and and create a community of coherence around that particular set of knowledge. Like that to me is really I mean, appealing. Yeah, go for it. I mean, it, I'm not sure what you're asking here. I mean, there are things that there are good reasons to keep secret. Sometimes those reasons are very practical, like, you know, spies and intelligence agencies need to keep certain things secret. Uh, companies need to keep like financial information and, you know, proprietary methods secret cultural communities might highly value certain cultural practices and want to keep them secret. I think the difference might be that cultural secrets, ritual secrets at the heart of like that kind of like um, communal secrecy, they don't get important until they get linked to something else that's in of interest to the broader world. world. Like if, if you have like a random subculture with a zine or two somewhere in the Bay Area and you get together and do some stuff. Um, it's fundamentally not interesting to the rest of the world. Like people have an over, um, over inflated sense of how much the rest of the world is inflated in them. There's a theme I keep coming back to. It's like you could open up your whole sort of um, private world that you think is hugely important and sacred to you and nobody would give a shit. (laughs) This is like proven (laughs) over and over. Like there's people like, you know, this is especially true of a lot of first time book authors. They are like petrified that, um, you know, their book will get pirated and read and uh, not paid for. And Mm -hmm. if it does get leaked, they find out to their disappointment that nobody gives a shit and he ever wants to read their book. And you (laughs) wish somebody would pirate and circulate your book in the millions of copies, right? Yeah. But I think the, the time when these kind of like, subjectively sacred and valuable things also get objectively sacred and valuable to the larger world is when they get attached to things like money and power. So if you have like, you know, some secret society, maybe Freemasons or whatever it is that um, people go and participate in little secret rituals or something, nobody gives a shit. But when it turns out that all the founding fathers were Freemasons and they designed the, um, geography of Washington DC and all the buildings based on like Freemason iconography, then people start getting interested and start asking hard questions like, all right, what is the secret society? How much money did it have? Mm-hmm. What decisions that we thought were democratic were actually taken by some secret bunch of assholes somewhere, right? So I don't mm-hmm. know if the Freemasons are good people or not, but I'm just using them as a very familiar ancient example of uh, secret societies. So it's, it's almost a sense of um, there's subjective valuation, like an internal valuation. And then there's the market valuation when you IPO in the broader cultural market by actually gaining power or money or something. 
And honestly, most people don't give a shit until you actually gain money or power. I love the idea of putting up a secret society to an IPO. That's what happens, right? Like uh, when, like uh, take the group of hackers, I forget what they were called, but when it came out that uh, Beto O'Rourke, the presidential candidate, he dropped out, but uh, that he was a member of this 80s hacker club, people made a big deal of it. And I think there's a book being written about it, mm. but it only became like that important when a presidential candidate was revealed to have an affiliation with it, right? That right. was like an IPO in the public consciousness. And you see that over and over again, things only become important when something of importance in a broader sense happens to one of the people participating in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, well, it's uh, a little over an hour at this point. How are you feeling? Let's uh, try and wrap it up in the next couple of questions. Okay. Cool. This has been a good conversation. I didn't really know where it was going to go. It's, it's gone in some cool places. <laughs> need to write, need to die. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe this will be the last question. Um, in the event of an apocalypse, and I'd love to hear you tease out the most likely apocalyptic scenario, do you lean more towards the guns in my bunker camp or the make it work farm commune camp like co- like collective collaborative society out in the open <laughs> <laughs> i think both are um, uh, nonsensical science fiction fantasies it's okay. um, that's for larping your favorite science fiction novel they're not realistic responses to meaningfully likely apocalyptic um, scenarios. Uh, So the most likely apocalypse scenario, I think is um, what people are calling the meaning crisis. If it snowballs much further, that's actually the most likely kind of apocalypse scenario. And the reason I say that is the big lesson of the last few years and what's happened with politics is just how fragile civilization is like even without throwing you know um inequality or climate change or any of the other sort of big so-called crises at it even without going that far even if it were things were like you know uh like say in the 1960s stage of things where we didn't yet have um all these crises snowballing even at that stage it's amazing how fragile the material foundation of civilization is And what makes this fragile thing actually work is people believing in it. So enough people believe in it enough to basically keep it kind of chugging along. It's like, so that's how you have, like in Washington DC, for example, there's um, been a 200 year old culture of norms on how presidents should behave, right? And one of the things we've learned in the last couple of years is that 90% of those expectations of what constitutes you know, good presidential behavior aren't actually encoded in laws. They're not written down anywhere. They're not, they're not like formally enforceable at all. So any president who chooses to, who chooses to can flout them. And the one we have right now has chosen to flout a lot of them. And that has sort of revealed the extent to which the normal functioning of uh, Washington DC relies on 
this sort of meaning-making narrative of norms and expectations that is built on top of the more you know, hard-edged institutional uh, structure of governance on top of like the hardware structure of governance, which includes like you know, guns and the military and so forth. So it's that whole stack. And when you have a crisis of meaning and that ability to sort of run that operating system on top of the hard realities fails, then even though the system might be completely viable, even though it might be capable of like functioning, like it could be like, a, this is a speculative thing. It could be that if some super intelligent aliens were to visit earth and look at everything we have, our technological capabilities, all our knowledge base, they would conclude that of course there's a solution. You do X, Y, and Z, you'll solve climate change. You do these few other things, you'll solve all the other practical problems and you'll be on your way, right? It could be that that's the answer, but we don't have these hyper-intelligent aliens coming and sort of reassuring us that we have what it takes. We have to find that belief and faith that we can do what we can ourselves. We have to look inwards and say, all right, this is what we have. This is what society is. It's just material infrastructure. It's just institutional infrastructure. And on top of that, there is this sort of um, self-fulfilling narrative prophecy about ourselves that we all believe in. And when that belief falls apart, we can't actually make the rest of it work, right? So that's the likely source of apocalyptic collapse. And once you recognize that that's how society is likely to fail, and this is, by the way, how historically societies have tended to fail. Um, once you recognize that, then the fallout of that, you don't look in terms of, all right, what are the viable, survivable islands of material reality? So it's not about like, you know, guns and bunkers or communes as sort of material ways of making things work. Mm -hmm. There are going to be millions of ways to make it work materially. They're going to be at all sorts of different scales. Like I was tweeting recently about billionaire stacks, like billionaires might create their own little private kingdoms that are actually very full functional. You might have like cities, large cities that have coherent polit political cultures, like, you know, LA or New York or Atlanta that become islands that run themselves in certain ways. You might have alliances uh, between various countries that, don't collapse, right? So you can have all sorts of patterns of survival. And I think if you want to predict what kinds of patterns of survival will emerge and what you want to ally yourself with, you have to look not at what material infrastructure is failing. So it's not about whether fossil fuels are failing or whether mm. energy grids are failing. It's more about what belief patterns are actually surviving and what mm. belief patterns are unraveling. What narratives are getting undermined to the point that the infrastructure can't be run with them and what narratives are getting reinforced. And that is sort of an optimistic message because once you realize that the patterns are a function of the narratives that survive, you can work at making any narrative survive. You can sort of work at robustifying any sort of narrative uh, foundation for survival. It doesn't have to be just these two. These two are also narratives, right? Bunkers and guns versus communes. There are two very specific survival narratives that come from our recent civilizational experience. And it's only the, the sky's the limit in terms of imagination of what other narrative patterns might survive. And if enough of them survive and enough of them are really powerful, maybe you won't have an apocalypse at all. All you will have is sort of a narrative phase shift where today's prevailing sort of functional narratives collapse, but you know, for everyone that collapses, three more take its place that are more powerful. And maybe you'll have sort of a narrative renaissance. So mm. that's the positive message of the apocalypse might basically be in our heads. And if we're able to sort of imagine our way out of it, there need not even be an apocalypse.
Hmm. Well, you may have just articulated the potential upcoming importance of the subculture. They might be more relevant than perhaps in earlier times. Subculture, grand narrative culture, all levels. I wouldn't get fixated on any one particular level of narrative creation. Everything from like personal narratives all the way to grand narratives like you know, make America great again is a narrative. And I think it's completely flawed and it resonates with some best set of people uh, who respond to it a certain way. But that's a narrative at the grand civilizational level, right? So you're, you're going to have patterns of survival at all levels. Mm, yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks for riffing nice with fun. me. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Um, do you, so I'll, I'll post all your regular links, but is there anything that you want to, is there anything that you want to plug specifically? Anything that you're working on right now? Uh, no, my regular links should work. Sweet. Good. All right. Have a good night, Venkat.